I believe that one of the best things that you can do before you launch a business or or as soon as you possibly can is to start to build up a marketing engine of some kind. Hello and welcome to Brandtuned, a podcast on brand management that covers trademarks and IP as they're intrinsic to brand equity. I'm your host, Shireen Smith, author of Brandtuned. Writing this led to Byron Sharp's evidence-based research stressing distinctiveness over differentiation, which I largely agree with, though not totally. Hence our tagline, Sharp Branding. My guest today is Rand Fishkin, co-founder and CEO of audience research startup Spark Toro. He's dedicated his professional life to helping people do better marketing through his writing, speaking, startups, and his book, Lost and Founder. He's been profiled in the Seattle Times, featured in Pudget Sound Business Journal's 40 Under 40, named to Business Week's 30 Under 30, written about in Newsweek, The Next Web, and hundreds of other publications. Rand, welcome to the Brandtune podcast. Thanks for having me, Shireen. Great to be here. Tell us a bit more about your background up to this point in your journey. Sure, yeah. So I, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I'm, I'm uh, reasonably well known for starting a company called Moz, which was initially uh, a blog about SEO and then became a consulting company and later a software company and was venture backed, you know, grew to, I think, probably 40 or $50 million in revenue um, before I stepped down as CEO and then later uh, left the company in 2018. And <laughs> the, uh, the day after I left the company, I started a new one, SparkToro, which is uh, also in the software space, marketing software, but not SEO. Uh, SparkToro is focused on audience research and, and, and market research. Um, and I, that same year, I also uh, published a book with, with Penguin Random House called Lost and Founder, which um, a lot of folks have read and sent kind notes about. And uh, yeah, I do a lot of sort of speaking and and blogging and those sorts of things. And I'm hoping to uh, to build a an interesting business out here in Seattle. Great. I was just looking at the Spark Toro website. So you would type in what your audience discusses. Can you tell us a bit more how it works? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's there's a few different ways to search um, Spark Toro, but essentially what Spark Toro is is a it's it's a giant uh, index of people's pro- public social profiles. So you know we might say, oh, here's here's Shireen's Twitter account, and and here's her LinkedIn, and here's her Facebook page if that's public, and here's her Instagram, and here's her Reddit account, and YouTube, and blah blah. blah. Whatever is public on the web, we aggregate those all together. And then we remove all the personally identifiable information, right? So no, no names, no addresses, no demographic data, no you know race or gender or age or anything like that. It's all about uh, behavioral information. So what do people who um, are hosts of podcasts talk about online? 
What do they read? What do they follow? What do they listen to? Uh, what do they talk about? Those are the things we're most interested in. So that if you're a marketer and you're trying to reach architects in Los Angeles or chemical engineers in the UK or uh, fiction authors in New York, you can find the podcasts that they listen to. You can find the websites that they visit. You can find the the people that they follow on social media and, and which channels and, and how much. Um, and we assign a, a percentage, right? It's a very, it's the simplest math there is, right? We basically say, oh, okay, well, we have, you know, 22,000 um, fiction authors in New York. That's probably, that's probably slightly high. Uh, but 10% uh, of them, you know, listen to this podcast and 12% of them follow this social account. And, and, and you know, and then you as a marketer um, can build much better personas, can make much smarter, you know, decisions about how to do your media planning and buying and all sorts of efforts. Right. So I guess it saves quite a lot of time. Do you have competitors who provide similar solutions? Yeah, we, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm still, I'm still sort of looking for it. So I think. Um, I think there's a company called Audience. It's it's spelled a little funny. I think it's A U D I E N S E, Audience, um, and I believe that they do some of the things that we do, but not sort of the percentage following. But they do give attributes about uh, a given group and an audience. They're more demographic focused, so they've crossed all the privacy legal barriers um, that we don't want to tackle. So how did you come up with the name Spark Toro? <laughs> um, so I am a huge fan of the Japanese cartoon Totoro. Uh -huh. And uh, so that, that inspired me to do Toro-related searches for domains that were available. And I really wanted, Shereen, this might seem a little odd, but I really wanted a name that had zero Google search results. Mm. So that no one would have heard of it or had any association with it, and the company would be free to sort of build the brand itself. Yeah, you can build recognition just for you rather than people associating it with other brands or other things they've come across. That's a good strategy. Yeah, that's that was exactly what we were hoping for. I'd love your perspective on what constitutes a good name for an online business. You know, when is it appropriate to use keyword rich names that say on the tin what your business does, for example? So in years past, you know, back in my my previous career um, in search engine optimization, there were times absolutely when having a keyword or a phrase that people searched for in your brand name and in your domain name was helpful, right? It was helpful in your rankings. If you you know, if someone was searching for, um, I don't know, men's jeans, owning mensjeans.com would help you rank. These days, mm, that is that is not very true, um, if at all. You know, Google is much, much more sophisticated than that. Um, so is Bing. So, you know, having keywords in your domain name really, really, really doesn't matter um, anymore. I, I think that when, if and when, uh, you have a business that you know is never going to change, right? So if if you're bluejeans.com or, or mensjeans.com and you know you're never, ever, ever going to sell women's jeans, 
and you wouldn't dare sell khakis and shorts are absolutely out of the question. Okay, fine. As long as you're convinced that that's, that's what you're always going to be and always going to do, um, then I think it's okay. But that's, that's a little unusual. So I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that. I think it limits your business in a lot of ways. I think that a lot of clients get really confused by hearing marketing people and SEOs who tell them to you know, use domain-rich names or keyword-rich names, rather. And yet it's so important to leave the name to do its job, which is to be a unique identifier that nobody else can possibly use. I love names that give you an opportunity for branding. Yeah. I mean, if somebody is using a name like that, jeans, that you, which, what was the example you gave? Blue jeans? Yeah, mensjeans.com, yeah. Well, then you see lots of other competitors can get different domain names um, with that. So the competition becomes really fierce, don't you think? I absolutely agree. I mean, what you really want, you know, what you want to do in a, in a business is not to be a commodity, right, that, that everyone is selling. You don't want people to even be searching for men's jeans. You want people to be searching for your brand, mm. right? You want them to come to you. You don't want them to even be thinking, gosh, I need a new pair of jeans. Where should I buy from? You want them to think, oh, I need a new pair of Randon Shireen's. <laughs> right? What do you think about people using a name, but with a keyword rich domain name as their, um, instead of their brand name, as or the brand name can change, um, redirect to the keyword rich name? Uh, that's, it's one of those things where I think if SEO was an incredibly big focus for you and we were talking about 10 years ago, it could make sense. Today, doesn't make sense at all. Okay, so it's really changed quite a lot since. Yeah, absolutely. It you know even as of twenty fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, um, you know the even just raw correlations that that we looked at at Moz with uh, domain names that had keyword um, placement in them, the correlation with rankings had fallen significantly. Today, it's so low that it's barely worth investing in. And there's so many benefits to having a brand that can that can build association. Um yeah, I just couldn't I couldn't in good conscience recommend anyone do that. Well you really know this space, so I'm really pleased to hear you saying that. I'm going to quote you in my book. <laughs> please please do. You can you can send them to me. I'll 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 happily disabuse anyone of the notion. Great. So your book, Lost and Founder, is a brilliant read. I highly recommend listeners get hold of a copy. And I really liked your comment about the very early days in your business. To quote, you said, we wasted money on advertising that didn't bring in business. We leased high-priced office space, convinced that an impressive building would help us close deals. We hired contractors and employees who didn't work out. We rented booth space at events that didn't even pay for themselves. And worst of all, we went into debt to do it. I absolutely love that because it just so describes an early stage business that 
really doesn't have a clue what's going to move the needle for them. So if you were advising your early sort of stage entrepreneur self now, what would you do in the crowded market? I think you were in websites at the time. So what would you do? I believe that one of the best things that you can do before you launch a business or or as soon as you possibly can is to start to build up um, a marketing engine of some kind that that relies on sort of three um, or sits at, at the confluence of three points. And those three points are, number one, you should choose to invest in marketing channels where you have personal passion and interest. I I hated having booths at conferences and events. I hated it. It's terrible. And and so of course it didn't work for me, right? Because what I've what I've never seen, Shireen, in the entire marketing world, all of my 20 years in the space, never once seen someone say, Oh, I, I hate using Instagram. It's puerile and and idiotic, but I'm really good at it. Never happened. <laughs> not, not once. So I, I really recommend that people choose uh, a an area of personal passion and interest. The second one, uh, the second criteria here is you should choose an area where you can add unique value, right? So, you know, when, when we were investing in whatever, high-priced office space, or um, this was back in the day, right? The ads in the paper, we, we weren't unique. There was nothing uniquely valuable about what we were doing there. When I made the Moz blog, the SEO Moz blog back in those early days, that was uniquely valuable because nobody else was talking about the things that I was. Nobody else was sharing as openly. Nobody else was, I say nobody, there were maybe two or three other blogs out there that that people did read about SEO that were good. But SEO Moz was very, very unique among the thousands of places you could go on the internet to learn about SEO uh, and remain so, right? So it, it built up um, that value. So that's that's the second one, an area where you can add unique value differentiated from where people could get that, where people could get that value otherwise. And the third one, the final one, is an area that your audience actually pays attention to. So if your audience, everybody at this point is online, and so uh, online is not a good enough space, but you might say, well, I really enjoy using Twitter, but maybe your audience isn't there. Uh, maybe you need to find uh, niche websites and forums and discussion sites that uh, attract your audience. Maybe you really enjoy um, you know, YouTube and videos, but you haven't been able to get your audience there yet. So you need to find where they are and start to do your marketing and your creation there and drive them to the channels that uh, that you're building on. But if you hit those three points, I think you're going to have a lot of marketing success. Right. So if you're in a crowded space, how would you then differentiate yourself? You said there were lots of website uh, providers. Yeah, I think differentiation comes from creativity and imagination. So it's the ability to see what's missing, not just what's there. Um, and I think it also comes from experience, right? So you can you can start to um, 
do things other people are doing, right? Follow your competitors' footsteps and then use your creativity to uh, find new ways to do the same thing or to do things better or to identify gaps, to identify missing elements. There's things that people in your uh, community, uh, people who cover your space, people who might be customers, things that they want and are seeking things that maybe they don't know that they want. And over time spent in that space, you can identify those and start to differentiate yourself. I think it also helps to have that differentiation in mind, not just with your marketing, but with your product, your brand, and your positioning. Um, So product, of course, is is whatever you make or sell or or doing. And uh, having having a unique element there that has some uh, recognizable consistency, right? So it's it's different, but it is recognizable. It, this is a, a silly example, but I, whenever I make visuals for any of my blog posts or my presentations, my, my stage talks, um, anything I'm doing visually, I always have a sort of a color palette and a, and a system of fonts that make it look like it was something that I made, right? So if you see those graphics anywhere on the web, anywhere in Google images or search or whatever, you can kind of quickly identify, oh, that, that must have been, uh, that's from Rand Fishkin. I know that graphic, right? And once you've seen them a few times, you start to build up that association. Um, I also, I think when it comes to um, Brand, I mean, we talked about brand a little and we could um, probably spend hours on it, but that's another area where uh, you can differentiate through, um, well, numerous different aspects with brand. The the thing that I really like to do with a brand to make it unique is to give it a a voice and a tone um, and a style that's uniquely me, right? Um, sort of a very personal feel. So you were in websites. What sort of year was that? How long was it uh, from then going into SEO? Uh, I was only a web designer for probably, I mean, truly professionally for only two years, maybe uh, 2000 to about 0203 before I moved into SEO. Right. Very early into SEO. Yeah. I think the challenge in business is to know what business you're really in um, so that one can offer what customers want and need. Like, you know, Kodak was off pushing film products instead of going into digital. So I was really interested in the section of your book where you describe your strategy at Moz of offering various products which moved you away from pure SEO. And also at the time, you didn't think the future was SEO or you d- you doubted it, I think. And then you say in your book that in retrospect, you think it was the wrong strategy to offer these other products. And you should have perhaps waited till you were the best in the world in every aspect of SEO. You know, so what's your thoughts on this since you wrote the book? I think that misstep has only become more clear. Um, you know, the the world of SEO, even though I'm no longer in it, uh, 
I, I still obviously have lots of friends and connections and I, I still own stock at Moz. Um, the reality is that that SEO has continued to grow. I think 2020, um, especially by virtue of, of two big trends from the, uh, the pandemic, one being everyone at home and uh, using their, their desktop and two, uh, everyone needing to use e-commerce. Um, but I think 2020 is the biggest year in SEO ever. Really? Uh, yeah, by a, pr- probably by a mile. And that's despite the economic downturn, because there's just so much demand, so, so many businesses who are desperately needing online uh, help, right, in terms of getting their business uh, marketed and getting traffic and customers to them. Uh, there's probably more Google searches this year than there ever have been by, you know, an additional 10 to 20%, if not more. Um, and yeah, SEO is just a, a very, very big space. There's, um, I think it's also the biggest it's ever been by a, by a large amount by number of people who are professionally practicing. It. And so the number of people who need software tools, um, and yeah, I'm glad that Moz refocused on SEO when it did in 2016. You know, I wrote about the yeah. sort of big strategic shift and layoffs that the company did, um, which were very, very painful at the time. It's sort of funny, like you, when you're in a business and it does layoffs, um, it, it feels like the end of the world, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's a, it's a pretty normal part of, of how economies and businesses work. Um, and yeah, in retrospect, I don't think I should have been nearly as afraid or worried about it. Um, I was also very afraid of losing my job, and and that didn't end up being very bad either. <laughs> what do you know? Ah, <laughs> oh, so that's interesting. Uh, what were your customers wanting? I mean, were they were they demonstrating any desire for other products apart from SEO? Because you had some really good ideas, the related products you were offering. Yeah. And I mean, funny enough, right? I think that um, those those related products, you know, what what the Moz content product did and what the Moz social product was was aiming to do, um, those ended up being great businesses, just different, you know, under a different company, mm-hmm. right? They, they just should not have been um, part of Moz, or if they should have been part of Moz, they should have had you know, different names and associations and been run by different divisions and um, somehow self-funding. That would have been quite a challenge. Uh, but the the customers at Moz wanted better SEO software. Wow. So I think it was very frustrating for them that for, you know, almost three years, maybe two and a half years, the product, the Moz product did not really improve because it was um, it didn't improve for SEOs because it was adding on all these other features for, um, well, primarily for social and content, but oops. Yeah. I think that was a big, big misstep. Yeah. And yet social was becoming very part, very much part of SEO, wasn't it? I mean, I don't know too much about SEO. Yeah. There was, there was a really funny sort of cycle there where, um, in the, in the sort of early days of Facebook and Twitter in particular, Google had, I don't want to say a direct connection, but there was, you know, there was very observable connections between go to Twitter, send a tweet with a link in it. Google immediately indexes that page. 
if lots of people share it on social, it, it, it quickly ranks better. Google always denied that there was a connection between them and, and social. And, um, and then they made a partnership with Twitter where they put uh, tweets and, and Twitter profiles directly into the, ser- the Google search results. Um, and that partnership lasted, I want to say, about two years, right around the time that Moz was getting into social. And then Google pulled the plug on it, uh, and um, or or maybe Twitter did. I'm not sure. One of the two companies basically decided that they didn't didn't want to work with the other or couldn't reach a deal, uh, and so they disappeared. Right, that integration disappeared, uh, only to come back two years later. So it was sort of the most frustrating time uh, of all, because of course, if you search Google today for I don't know for my name, for example, right, you'll see my my Twitter profile come up front and center with my tweets. And, you know, the same is true for millions of different types of searches. There's, there's a lot of social integration, um, primarily with Twitter and, and also of course, YouTube, if you consider YouTube to be a social channel. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's, there's quite a, quite an overlap there, but, um, my, my sense is it's it's always risky to build things at the outset of a trend because you don't know where exactly it's going to go. So you do a lot of blogging still, and you're very active on social media. Is that because you really enjoy them or because you think they're good for, for businesses to do generally? I think it's a little of both, actually. Um, I am... I'm definitely personally passionate about learning about people and social media is a, is a phenomenal way to do that at scale. It's also a good way, you know, in, um, in quarantine that we've been in for gosh, 10 months now, um, to keep connections current. Right. Um, so that's a, you know, I use it, I use it professionally, but in a, in a very personal professional way. Um, and it is also a great way for us to drive um, awareness, attention, get customers, all those kinds of things, right? So I, I do a lot of blogging, as you mentioned. This week, for example, I'm doing a like a five-part series analyzing the U.S. elections from a marketing perspective um, and releasing sort of one every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, when I when I release the blog post, I go to LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter and 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 write about them there and um, earn traffic from them. And hopefully other people see that and they amplify it, send that traffic over and you know, fingers crossed, right? The goal is sort of over time, more people find my work, feel it's worthwhile and, and enjoyable and valuable to them, subscribe to it, and then maybe eventually give the product to try to. And, but you're not doing podcasting, is that right? Uh, I mean, I do a lot of podcasts in the way that I'm doing this one with you as as a guest, but I don't uh, I don't run my own now. I've heard that blogs are very difficult to get attention on, uh, but I guess you already have your audience, so it's different for you. Yeah, I mean, I definitely found I found that to be true as well. So when I you know when I left Moz, I had a you know a podcast that was or sorry a um, a blog that was. Hmm, I think getting about on average 20, maybe 20 ish thousand visits a day uh, or per post. And when I left, obviously, I started Spark Toro and now it's 
uh, in the early, you know, early days of, you know, I had a reasonable audience. So maybe three or 400 people were reading the first blog post that I put on SparkToro mm-hmm. when I published them. Um, and that's grown to a couple of thousand, maybe, maybe 3000 or so, but you know, it's still a 10th the size that it was at Moz, which is no surprise. I've been at this two years and I worked on Moz's blog for 20 years. So yeah, you had your whiteboard Fridays and things as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, the Whiteboard Friday video series that um, that eventually became quite popular as well. Yeah. So, do you think social media is worthwhile for small businesses to spend time on, or should they be spending on boosting their posts? You know, spending money advertising. So this is this is where I think it comes back to those three criteria. If you really enjoy a social channel and you're good at it, and you know that you've got a way to add unique value to it, and your customers are there, go for it. If those things are not true, choose a different channel, right? Yeah, it might be advertising, it might be conferences and events, it might be personal networking. Um, You know, if you have a professional services business, uh, referrals referrals and networking are a huge part of that. Um, If you are trying to... uh, you know, promote a, a book or a blog or a podcast. Social media can be great, but it's not great for everyone. And it's not great for every audience. So I think you've got to look at where your um, target customers are and what they pay attention to, uh, to determine where, where you should go spend your energy and effort. But, you know, this is one of the reasons we created SparkToro, so that people could easily find what their audiences pay attention to. Sounds great as a tool. So what what tool would you use to work out which keywords to target if you want to introduce a new product or service? Yeah, so there's a number of um, SEO keyword tools. I, I still use the one, the one that I made at Moz, which was called Keyword Explorer, the one I wrote about in Lost Founder. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, a lot of folks like a company called uh, A. Ahrefs, it's A-H-R-E-F-S dot com. Um, they have a popular tool that's also called Keyword Explorer. Uh, and there's another company called SEMrush, S-E-M-R-U-S-H. Um, I think, uh, yeah, so Ahrefs, I think, is based in Singapore. And, and uh, SEMrush is out of um, St. Petersburg. Uh, and those tools are very, very popular. I think both of those are actually, those companies are uh, bigger than Moz is now. Um, they sort of stayed focused on SEO software at the right time. Really? Uh, but they have, they have good keyword research products as well. That's interesting. Well, um, I'm not going to keep you much longer. So I just wonder if somebody's looking for a suitable SEO provider, how you would advise them to go about finding one given that the barriers to entry are very low and anyone might call themselves a seo expert how would you recommend people find out yeah i would do uh i would do a couple things the first one is i would ask in your personal network and professional network Mm -hmm. so do you you know do people know folks do you have someone you recommend um the second thing that i would do is uh I would go and find some of the uh, content about SEO that really resonates with you. 
So if you, you know, if you go searching around for information on SEO for e-commerce and you find a great post from Everett Sizemore and you're like, oh gosh, this Everett guy sounds really smart. It seems like he's done a lot of work in, in e-commerce SEO. I reach out to him, drop him a line. If he can't help you, he will know who can. Um, and the SEO world is is filled with really friendly, kind people. Um, I, I am I am overwhelmed all the time at how uh, amazingly uh, thoughtful people are in that in that world, and and they will refer you. And the third thing, if you are struggling uh, and you need help finding a consultant or an agency, you're actually welcome to email me. I have a big network of folks that I um, like, and I often. Um, I get a lot of inquiries and always have, you know, who do you recommend for SEO? So I, uh, I have sort of an email list that I ping and say, Hey, is anybody interested in working with, you know, this person on this project? And then uh, folks get back to me and I pass on their info. So you're welcome to do that as well. My, my email is rand at sparktoro.com. Okay. That's great. Um, I just wonder about SparkToro. You've got various different pricings. And there's certain services that are only available at the top price. Um, is it possible for people to buy the top one for a month and then to go to the smaller versions if they don't need that? Yeah, absolutely. That's so um, people upgrading can... and downgrading is is very easy. So is canceling. We make it super easy to cancel. So we have lots of folks who sort of try SparkToro for well. So we have a forever free account. So that folks can you know, run 10 searches a month forever uh, and never get charged. You don't even need a credit card. It's just free. Um, and that's that's quite popular. A lot of folks use that and find it valuable and, and plenty enough. And then if you need other features or more data or more searches, those kinds of things, um, yeah, you can upgrade and downgrade at will. How does it actually choose the top podcasts? Or what are the criteria for choosing that? Yeah, like I said, it's that really simple uh, just bit of math. So it just looks at um, of 2,000 chemical engineers in the UK, you know, whatever your, your target criteria for your audience is, what percent of them engaged or interacted with uh, this podcast via one or more social channels? And so then you see the percentage number, which is eleven percent or thirty-one percent, what have you. So the the top is just the uh, podcast or social account or website or YouTube channel that was most engaged with uh, by that audience. Okay, so you go on engagement in terms of liking a post that mentions podcast, the podcast. Yeah, that is that is definitely one of them. So the the criteria for engagement engagement could mean a bunch of things. It could mean they followed that podcast's account on that channel. Mm. It could mean that they shared a link to the podcast. They, um, yeah, liked. What would it be on? Yeah, liked on Facebook, liked on Twitter, or retweeted or shared on LinkedIn or shared on Facebook or sent a tweet on Twitter, uh, they liked a post that contained the the, um, the link to the podcast. I think there's a couple other elements that I'm not remembering or ways that could trigger basically what we consider engagement. Oh, I think if you reply to a, to a, um, a social post that contains the URL, we also consider that engagement with the podcast, right? So it's it's an inferred engagement. We infer that if you engage with 
in those ways that you probably have some connection to that podcast. And then we put you in the, you know, yes, this engaged bucket. And so of the 2000 accounts that have the word chemical and engineer in their bio or profile across one or more social networks, 11% engaged with this particular podcast. Great. Sounds really interesting. I shall try the account properly. I haven't had time to do more than play very mildly with it. It sounds very interesting. So I will definitely give it a go. Great. Yeah. I, um, well, I'm happy to help if you uh, run into any trouble. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rand. And just finally, uh, is there a brand that you particularly admire online, offline, any brand that you think? Oh, my gosh. I I mean, I have tons of brands that I love. Um, let's see. There's a company I've used for forever that, um, that I think does just a wonderful job with uh, video hosting and, and video content, and that is Wistia out of Boston, yeah. W-I-S-T-I-A. Uh, we use them for we use them for video hosting for Whiteboard Friday at Moz uh, for years, and now uh, we use them for all of our product videos um, for SparkToro as well. And they're just a terrific company. Great, thank you very much, Rand. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Shireen. I'd love it if you would sign up to the Brandtune newsletter at brandtune.com slash newsletter and access the seven costly mistakes to avoid when branding or rebranding. The link is in the show notes. My guest next week is Brand Vanuken, who is the president and founder of Brand Forward Inc., a brand strategy consultancy with clients throughout the world. He wrote the best-selling brand book, Brand Aid, and he co-authors a successful branding blog read by tens of thousands of marketers throughout the world. Thank you.